Welcome to Ask Away with Vince and Joe Vitale and hosted by Michael Davis. Vince and Joe Vitale are currently leading the Zacharias Institute. Both hold doctorates from the University of Oxford, Vince in philosophy, and Joe in women in the Old Testament. In a world that increasingly sees the Christian faith is irrational and irrelevant, it is more important than ever for believers to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. Ask Away is brought to you by Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. It's time to Ask Away. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask Away with Vincent Giovitali. I am your host, Michael Davis. The Christian faith rests squarely on what Jesus has done for sinners. Our salvation and our status in the presence of a holy God is everything, yet for some, salvation can be confusing at times. Why aren't more people saved? Is going to heaven even a compelling enough reason to become a Christian? Considering that these questions are difficult for believers to wrap their heads around, how is a faithful believer supposed to respond? But before we get started, Vince, could you tell us a little bit about the campus mission event recently held at UC Berkeley? Sure thing. Hi, everyone. Uh, Joe and I had the privilege of being at University of California, Berkeley, uh, just recently, and we spent a whole week, we call it a missions week, on a university campus. And so we do events at lunchtime and in the evenings, a morning prayer and planning meeting uh, every morning, and lots of time for people's questions and to journey with people throughout the week as they uh, pursue Christ. And one of the highlights of this week was Wednesday morning at our prayer meeting, when someone who we didn't know showed up at the prayer meeting, and during our time of sharing, she put her hand up uh, and she introduced herself to us as a new believer. Uh, she had become a Christian the day before, and she told us this beautiful testimony of how she had actually seen us on campus the year before, and she actually just slipped into one of the events, grabbed a sandwich, and left. But this year, she was in a different place. And she came in, she sat down for one of the talks, she started to engage with a member of our team. She had some of her questions answered, but it was so beautiful the way she spoke at this morning prayer meeting. She said, some of my questions were being answered, she said, but even more than that, as the talk was being given, somehow I just knew that God was communicating with me directly. And I knew that he wanted me to take uh, this step of saying yes to him and asking for his forgiveness and stepping into a relationship with him. And so she did that on a Tuesday. She introduced herself to us uh, on a Wednesday, and then she got right involved in the mission and started sharing her faith uh, with others as well. That was such a huge encouragement to the other students on that campus. One other Christian student immediately after that said, it is just so encouraging to see that salvation is possible and that it is near. I love that phrase. And then a third student, another Christian student, through tears, she said, on this campus, I can say that I love Jesus, but I'm not allowed to say that you should too. Yeah. And then she just gave this wonderful encouragement of the fact that during this week, when we were on campus doing all of these events, her non-Christian friends were coming to her asking if she would go with them to the events that we were putting on. So in a phenomenal week, that's just a little snapshot of what we were doing. We do these weeks all over the country, and we really value your prayers uh, for them whenever you can offer them up on our behalf. What a wonderful story. It's it's really cool. Sometimes, you know, you get to see the seed germinate, and sometimes you don't. So uh, uh, praise the Lord for, for, for that story and for, the, for all the stories that will be coming into the future. So let's get into our first question. This question is from Jason. Why, if God did everything he could, do so few find the way that leads to life? It seems that God could have done something more to bring people to him. And it would seem that if he is not far off from any of us, Romans 1, uh, 16 through 28, and Acts 17, 25 through 27, more people would find him. 
Do you have a solution for this or a few thoughts that could point me in the right direction? Jason, thank you so much for that question. What I love is that really shows the concern on your heart, your desire for people to come to know God. And and actually the, the grief that I think we rightly carry for those who don't come to know him. And, and to me, that really is a reflection of God's own concern. And when he says in Ezekiel that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but that people should turn and, and be saved. And, you know, that it's his kindness that leads people towards repentance. And yet there is a reality to the fact that many don't come to know God. And Jesus himself is is quite frank about that in in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Um, and I think that maybe part of the answer to this question is something we discuss a bit in an uh, earlier episode we did on why isn't God more obvious. So I do think that could be a, a place to think through this question as well. But but I also want to ask the question, what is it that we believe God is is bringing people to? What is this life that he He has for them? Because I think that helps us to understand why so few um, do, do take that road. And, and one of the things I would say is that if God just wanted to bring people to their knees and force people to worship him, then yes, absolutely, he could bring everybody to know him. Um, or another situation I could imagine would be if God said, hey, you know what? It doesn't really matter how you live. I just want to be in relationship with you. You just do your thing. It's kind of more a view of love as acceptance, love that says, I will affirm everything about you, no matter how destructive or harmful it may be to yourself or to other people, or even to me, I'm just going to take it because I value relationship with you so much that you just do you and I'll just, you know, I'll just let you do you and yet we'll still be in relationship. If that was how God approached us, then yes, I suppose a lot more people would desire relationship with him in that context as well, because in that scenario, you get to still remain God and yet have him as kind of your, your imaginary friend or invisible friend on the side who isn't really making hard demands on your life. Um, but that isn't how God relates to us or interacts with us. If that were the case, then actually, in what sense would he even meaningfully be God anymore? In that scenario, um, he'd have to sacrifice so many things like justice, like fairness, like holiness. Um, He might give us everything we want in that situation, but nothing that we need or anybody else needs. So I don't think that is the way that God could relate to us. And actually, the amazing thing is in Jesus, he still comes and lowers himself to be accessible to us, to live human life with us. Um, so in that sense, he He lowers himself as far as he can go. But ultimately, the goal is not to leave us there. But actually, the message of Jesus, and this is what's so deeply challenging, is this, that when he comes to earth, this is what he preaches. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand repent. And I think it's that word repent that makes it so hard for us to come into relationship with God. And that's why it's so few, because we want God on all sorts of different terms and all sorts of different ways. But that's the one thing we really don't want to do. And I think one primary reason why so few come to know him is because um, that that is what is needed in order for relationship with him to be real. And I think uh, that is a huge stumbling block for many of us. I, I've probably mentioned it before, but one of the questions Vince and I really like to ask people if, we're, if we've been talking to them about faith and they seem like they're interested, but they're, they're also really pushing back. Um, then in the conversation, we'll sometimes pause and say, Let's just hold on for a moment with these arguments. Let me just ask you this question. If it was true, do you want it to be? And if God is real, do you actually want to know him? Because that really pauses the conversation. I think that forces people to confront the fact that very often they they don't. 
Uh, you know, we can make all sorts of intellectual excuses and sometimes they're real, but sometimes we also make excuses to justify why we don't believe in God because the truth of the matter is we don't want to if what is required is for us to step down off the throne and say, okay, you be God of my life. That is the hardest thing for, for most of us to come to. I think, so I think, yes, there are intellectual reasons, but the biggest thing of all is our hearts. Our colleague Abdu often says it wasn't that the answers were hard to find, it was that they were hard to accept. Right. I think that's a really... A fair statement. And Jason, as I was reflecting on your question, I was thinking it's not only a question about uh, non-believers, but in one sense, it's a question even about us as Christians as well, because every day of the week, there are things that God desires for us to do, uh, ways that he desires for our hearts to be, uh, good things that he desires for us to walk with him into. And time and time again, we often say no. Uh, we often go in our own way rather than in his way. Uh, and so we, even as Christians, we know that experience of knowing uh, what God desires and what God is doing and how God is prompting us in our lives to go in one direction, and so often we go in the other direction. And I think we know when we consider our own experience that really that has a lot more to do with where our heart is at than where God's heart is at. And you reference Romans 1 uh, in your question, which I think is a really appropriate uh, text, and I thought I might just say a few words uh, about that. I was thinking of Romans 1, 19 to 20 in particular, and it says, For what is known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And it's always struck me that this is a really strong statement saying that what can be known about God is known about him and not just something about him, but actually his divine nature and that it's actually plain to people and it's been clearly perceived because God has shown it to them. Sometimes it's translated for what may known, be known about God. I think it's more literally and better translated for what is known about God, but then it causes this slight tension because on the one hand, here in verse 19, it says, for what is known about God is plain to people. But then just before that, in the text in verse 18, it talks about us suppressing the truth. And so it seems to say on the one hand that God has made himself clear to us and plain to us and that we know him. And that on the other hand, it seems to say that we don't know God because we tend to suppress the truth. And I've been reflecting on that quite a bit recently, how could it be the case that in one sense we know God because he's revealed himself through his creation, through conscience, and in many other ways, ultimately through his scriptures and the person of Jesus, but also this sense that we don't know God at the same time and that many throughout the world don't. And I came up with a simple analogy, which is the question of whether I know how many cousins Joe has. Uh, and the answer is no, uh, which I'm now getting a look from her that uh, is not favorable, but she has a lot of cousins. So if you just ask me, if Michael just asked me, Vince, how many cousins does Joe has? I can't give him the answer right now. But if you were to give me a couple of minutes and I were to go through each specific family and count it up, then I could give you the answer. So even in a simple analogy, there's this sense in which we can know something and also not know it at the same time. If we choose to suppress that knowledge and not to actively engage with the knowledge that we already have. And I think that is often what's going on, and I think that's what Romans 1 suggests as well, that we are 
very inclined to forms of self-deception. We know things and we tend to keep that knowledge from ourselves, oftentimes because we're afraid of it or because it causes anxiety or, or maybe because we just desire pleasure or, or, or something along those lines and we don't want to make the commitment that it would mean to uh, actually recognize the knowledge that we already have. So all that to say, as we look at that text, Romans 1, uh, that you brought up in your question, I think what it implies to us is that God has done everything necessary to make sure that all people know him. That's what Romans 1 uh, suggests, and that the problem is not that God isn't making himself known. I think if we were able to see the world without the uh, sin-tainted glasses that we're wearing, and we just looked at the intricacy of the world without us, or we just looked within us to our consciences, it would just be utterly obvious to us that God exists. I think that's that knowledge that resides deep down inside every single person. But the problem is that we suppress it. The problem is that we tend to deceive ourselves from what we already know, and therefore the problem is primarily with us. It's not a problem with God or how he's revealing himself. I think uh, going into Romans a little bit further, because I think it's even it's, it's even more um, kind of profound than that, because it's not even just a matter that that so few is it's surprising that anyone is uh, it, it finds the the <laughs> narrow path. If you look at uh, Romans three ten, uh, where there uh, where uh, Paul is uh, quoting um, the Psalms, is there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands there is none who seeks for God. Mm. Um, the natural man, the person external to the working of the Spirit, does not just suppress knowledge of God. They run away from him. Um, grace is the reason. That is the difference between those who are who are saved and those who are not. Those who the, the Spirit is working in them and through them. Um, the truth is, and I think implicit to this question is also why are there so few? Why are there no more? It's it's also a misunderstanding of what mercy is. There is there are some people who truly genuinely believe that God should open the gates of heaven to anyone, that, but they misunderstand. First of all, the fact that people are running away from God, they're not seeking after Him, uh, but the fact that He has mercy to save even the few, because mercy is not mercy if it's demanded. God has mercy on those who don't deserve it, those who are unrighteous, that none are righteous, that none understands, that no one seeks after him. But the fact is he saves those who are undeserving, and the, it's, it's so magnificent that, just, uh, that, that anyone is saved because ultimately none of us deserve anything that God gives us. Mm. I think um, it's... It's interesting to me, this question, because again, as so many of our questions do when it gets to the bottom line, it, it really is a question of, of fairness and yeah. goodness. Do we believe God is fair? And do we believe that actually he 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 desires to save people? And I think often we think, oh, well, it seems like I care more than God does about all the people who don't come to know him. But I think every one of us could testify to the fact that um, both in our own lives and in the lives of other people who we see God reaching out to, it blows my mind the lengths that God will go to Amen. to reach people, not just at the cross, which is everything in and of itself, not just through creation, not just through the evidence that he leaves for us, but even personally, like the 
the things that I see him doing, intricately weaving people's lives and stories together in such a way as to reveal himself to them. And and I just think, wow, I cannot, you know, I get frustrated that people don't know you, but I cannot say that you don't care or that you're not doing everything that you can uh, to reach people. Just give you one example of this. Um, I'll call I'll call this person Rachel, but there's someone in my life who's very dear to me who um, uh, who isn't a believer, but actually she, she intellectually believes God exists, but just like we've been talking about, there's this barrier within her heart that she's not particularly interested in in coming to know him. And uh, last year I was uh, about to get up and speak at an event in Texas and and this person, Rachel, was traveling in another part of the world in Nepal and, um, and they travel a lot. And so I'll often pray for her on her travels that she would be safe, but I never um, worry about her particularly. And, but then just as I, I was getting up to speak, I felt this overwhelming fear within me like I've never experienced this before but but just this kind of it was almost like my heart jolted and I felt this kind of like you know a gasping a, a sort of horror as I just honestly had this overwhelming feeling that her life was in danger and that she that something was going to happen to her and that she was going to die and I don't really know how to explain that except to say that I began to pray and say God please don't let this be true please preserve her life until she comes to know you. you've been so patient and gracious but please continue to to get give her the, the time to come to know you and and so I prayed that went on with the event and then the next morning I got a, a text from her saying hey I just want to let you know I'm okay but um, last night we started out on this journey down through the mountains and we got a flat tire at the beginning of the journey and we were really annoyed because we had to pull over on the side of the road. We had to wait for an hour while they fixed the flat tire. And then as we carried on down the road, suddenly we discovered this big traffic jam and there was this huge landslide up ahead that had wiped out the road and, and buried like cars in the rubble. And the only reason we hadn't got caught up in this enormous like land mudslide, we worked out the timing and realized it was because we got the flat tire. And um, and so I was shaking when I read her text message and I, I just phoned her and I said, can you just tell me what time you got the flat tire? And it was within 10 minutes of when I prayed for her. And so I, at that point, was just a blubbering mess down the phone and just crying, just telling her what had happened and, and just kind of pleading with her, please don't play Russian roulette with your life. Um, you know, God is being patient because he loves you and he wants you to come to know him. And and amazingly, you are still here, I think, so that I, you know, I could share this with you so that you would know the lengths he would go to to let you know, hey, I'm watching over you and I'm trying to reach out to you here. And, and she admitted at that time, you know, she said, well, well, you know, I've never prayed in my life like I was praying today. But then, you know, give it a couple of months later and she's already gone back to burying her head in the sand and not being interested in, in thinking about God anymore. It's not because she didn't believe mm. what happened was true. She actually, we have a really close relationship. She absolutely trusts my word when I say that happened. Um, but she's just in that place of rebellion and resistance. And that has happened to her several times before other things like that in her life so I can see God reaching out yeah. in, in unbelievable ways but I also see the stubbornness of the human heart um, that we do put up such a big fight. It's such a good point that one way to uh, resist having to accept or receive a gift that's been given to you is to criticize the gift yeah. and so often we're so inclined to do that and uh, I was just reminded of uh, an example where a good friend of mine proposed to his girlfriend, uh, and it was in a grotto in Italy, uh, this beautiful place. Joe is laughing because she remembers this. And it was this beautiful place. Uh, okay, granted, it was sort of a public proposal. There were other people around. Granted, he was holding uh, the ring with the diamond in it in a grotto in Italy over the water, which is probably, you know, oh. not the <laughs> not the wisest thing to do with the most expensive thing that you've that you've ever bought. But the point is that he was making this extravagant gift 
to his girlfriend, uh, and she wound up saying yes, but then actually they wound up fighting for the rest of the day and the rest of the trip, actually, about the fact that he hadn't given the gift in the right way. That wasn't the way that she wanted to receive the gift. And I found myself thinking, okay, that may be true, and, and granted, holding the ring over you know, an ocean was maybe not the wisest thing to do, but you've been given a gift, and so let's focus on the fact that an extravagant gift was given to you and that if you want to say yes to that, that should be the primary focus. And I think actually it's often offensive to people who haven't received that sort of gift to criticize the gift rather than being thankful for having received it. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of people who long to get engaged and will never have that opportunity. Here's someone who had that opportunity and was inclined to criticize the gift. Or I was thinking about the fact that for many of us, uh, we're able to eat full meals every night. And one of the reasons why I hope we try to not just waste food and we try to finish the food on our plates is because it would be offensive not to fully receive that gift to those who haven't received it in the same way. So rather than focusing on what about those who don't seem to have received this gift, let's focus on the fact that we have been offered a gift in such an extravagant way. And actually, it does right by those who are still waiting for that gift or those who are still pursuing that gift. It honors them for us to receive it wholeheartedly. Absolutely. Well, let's go into the second question. This is from Addie. I have a friend who says if Christianity didn't offer heaven to its believers, would anyone be interested in it? Isn't it a selfish reason to become a Christian, especially when many people use to sell the go- use that to sell the gospel? How should I respond? Mm. Addie, that's such a thoughtful question, and um, you're right. I think it it can be the case that when when you see Christians who um, seem to be in it for what they're going to get out of it at the end, it can look pretty self-interested. And I do think with you that that would be a poor reason to believe, just like, um, you know, in the Middle Ages, there are all sorts of churches with terrifying pictures of hell up. And I equally think being terrified out of hell into heaven and um, doing it out of fear is also not a great reason to believe. As Christopher Hitchens said, uh, what, to terrify children with the image of hell, what good is that for the world? And so both out of a sort of selfish motivation or a fear-based motivation, I don't always think uh, those the best reasons um, to want to become a Christian for what you're going to get out of it. And I find it interesting, actually, when you read the Old Testament that you know, scholars um, sort of debate around how much the Jews had an understanding of the afterlife. There seem to be indications of it within the text. There are references to Sheol, which, you know, a place beyond um, this world. And, you know, you have references like when David's son dies and he says, um, can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. You know, so there are references to an afterlife, but the primary focus throughout the Old Testament, the story of the people of God, it isn't really otherworld focused. It's much more focused on living life well now with God in covenant with him rather than being future oriented. And um, I think, you know, that there can be something really beautiful and, and meaningful about that. I actually had an atheist challenge me in an open forum the other day Um and he, so he was the head of the Secular Humanist Society and he was basically criticising the sort of martyrdom you sometimes see in religions that seems all focused about dying and being in heaven as opposed to doing good in the world now. And I actually agree with him that if that was what Christianity became, solely focused on what is to come rather than life now, we would be poorly representing the faith that we've been called to um, because actually uh, it, it should be the other way around. It's because we care so much about eternity that we're invested in the now. And the reason why I say that is because ultimately in Christianity, 
messy heaven isn't like in Islam where it's about paradise and, and the goals or the, the things that you get from it. Um, but actually, you know, we've used this line before, but, but I think it says it so well in John 17 when Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Ultimately, heaven for the Christian is not about the place you go to get all the good stuff or ride the theme park rides, but actually it's about knowing God. And that is a relationship that doesn't just start in heaven, but this eternal life starts now. And so that's a life that we we desire to live as well as we can, not just in the future, but but even um now. And I think when you when you flip it around to realize heaven is about relationship, not about the things that you're going to get at the end of the day, that radically changes your thinking um, in terms of what we're actually offering to people. Um, and that can both seem more appealing to some, but also less appealing to others, as we've just been talking about, because some people don't actually, they want the stuff, but maybe they don't want the relationship with God. That is the bigger challenge of Christianity. It always breaks my heart um, when you read about when Jesus' teaching becomes too hard and a lot of people turn away from him and and he turns to his disciples and said, are you going to leave me also? And you can just almost hear the pain in his voice of Jesus saying like, are you going to reject me too? Because it got hard and suddenly it wasn't so easy and attractive anymore. It didn't just look like the good, easy life and and you've all these people have walked away. Are you going to abandon me too? Or do you actually desire me for what I'm really offering myself as opposed to the easy life that you thought it was? And then Peter just speaks back these amazing words. The apostle Peter sometimes gets it horribly wrong, but this time he gets it right. And he says, Lord, to whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, Old Testament, uh, Joe, and I was thinking of the Sadducees as well, who were still around during uh, Jesus's time, a uh, sect of Judaism who were actually in charge of maintaining uh, the temple. And yet they didn't believe, in contrast to the Pharisees, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And yet they were still committed to uh, God. And when I think about heaven in the way that you've defined it, Joe, and if we think uh, primarily about eternal life as coming to know God and the one that he has sent and being in relationship uh, with him, then yes, that is a reason that I become a Christian. But like you said, Joe, that's not to uh, gain some entry pass into some theme park. That's a step <laughs> uh, into a relationship. And when I think about my own life, you know, do I deserve life after death? No. Uh, do I deserve eternal life in that sense, an afterlife that will be uh, a beautiful uh, blessing to me? Absolutely not. And if the if the invitation to become a Christian, I'm so thankful that it does include that, but if the invitation to become a Christian didn't include anything after my earthly death, uh, I would still be just as committed to it, and I would still say yes to it just as uh, emphatically. But that's not something that I deserve. And my primary problem is that I need forgiveness. My primary problem is not that I need to live in a different place, which is going to be uh, a more joyful place. I absolutely need that, and that's a wonderful thing, and I look forward to that. But my primary problem is that I need forgiveness for the things that I've done wrong, and that is something that Jesus offers to me right now. And he offers me a spirit that comes to live within and can empower me to be more of the person that I was created to be so that I can have healthier relationships in my life and so that I can treat other people with the love and the respect that he asks me to. I had a, a soccer teammate many years ago. He was actually, he became a Christian. He wasn't at the time, but on his journey as he was sort of coming to understand what the Christian life was about, at one point he said, you become a Christian so that you can live the life. Uh, and that's not the only reason you become a Christian, but I thought there was some insight 
in that line. He was seeing that in the context of the Christian life, there was this forgiveness you receive from God, which then empowers you to live that fullness of life that Jesus spoke about, which includes the fruits of the Spirit that you see becoming developed in your life. And and that's part of the reason that you become a Christian, not just for something uh, that is life after death, but actually because it's the fullness of life before death as well. I think uh, a lot of people uh, see heaven as the end state when it's not. Um, reading Revelation, reading what Jesus said about the future um, resurrection of the dead, heaven is a holding pattern. Um, I forget, I think it was Sproul that said, you know what people do in heaven? They wait for the new heavens and the new earth. It's what heaven is and what um, being a believer is, is forgiveness. It is redemption. Just like he redeems his people, he will eventually redeem the earth. So uh, we're not going anywhere. Eventually, one day, those who believe will be resurrected from the dead, and they will live on earth in a redeemed earth that is going to be perfect. We are going to have perfect communion with God. And to kind of tie up what you said, Joe, and what you said, Vince, it is this perfect union of forgiveness, redemption, and communion, and knowing God. It is fixing what was broken by our sin. And heaven... This is the problem I think a lot of people have is that they think that it is just one giant like long worship practice where <laughs> people are playing, you know, harps and there's cherubs flying all over the place and it sounds horribly boring. What heaven is is literally being in the presence of God. This is not something that if someone has rejected God, who, and if you think the, the the previous question, those who have suppressed the knowledge of God, those who do not seek after God, this is not something that anyone would want unless they truly and genuinely seek after him. In that sense, you might even say that actually it's heaven that requires the selflessness because it's directed towards worship of God, whereas actually hell would be the more selfish place because Amen. that's basically saying... I don't, I don't want to worship this God. I want to be God. It's, it was Milton in Paradise Lost, right? He said that, you know, he's sort of, par he's speaking through the voice of um, Satan to say better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And I actually think that's insightful because that's the image of it. Now, we're not saying that, that it isn't desirable to want eternal life. And, you know, I will talk about that as an evangelist as part of um, of what Jesus did did. Um, come to offer us. But the reason that is appealing is not because, oh gosh, I want to live forever, but it's it's more from the perspective of, um, God, I'm so in love with you and you're so amazing that I cannot stand the thought of being apart from you and the promise of getting to be with you for eternity. Like that's what, mm -hmm. so that's your heart yeah. racing. I mean, it's, you know, it's the same with marriage. Like we can all agree, like the most you know, when you really love your spouse, which I do, like even now oh, the right. thought of Vince dying, even knowing <laughs> I'll see him again, like that that really upsets me because I just can't bear the thought of not being with him. And um, Vince is smiling because it's like finally a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, how much more so with God, right? Yeah. How much more so that's what we desire. And I love the words of the psalmist because I think it just speaks to the intimacy of relationship on offer and just how outstanding God is when you actually get to know him when, in Psalm 73, it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? On on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so I think when we understand uh, heaven and what's perhaps implied by that in the question, eternal life, for what it really is, knowing God, loving him, being with him face to face, as Michael and Joe have been saying, then we understand why it's not selfish. And when we understand what our problem is, that we have a problem 
with sin and a need for forgiveness, then we understand why desiring that is not selfish. If sin is like an addiction, no one would think it's selfish to want to be healed from alcoholism, or no one would think it was selfish for the person with anorexia to want to get better. That may be self-interested, but in a good way, because that's the healing that you're supposed to have in your life. That's the person you're supposed to be. That's not uh, selfish. Selfishness is when something is for your good at the expense of others, not just if it's for your good. And I know in my own life, part of the reason that I became a Christian was because I recognized that I had addictions in my own life in various ways, and they were causing harm and hurt in the relationships with the people that I cared about most and that I loved most. So I know that my decision to become a Christian, was it self-interested? Yes, it was, because I needed fixing and I needed saving. But it was also for others. It was for the people in my life who needed me to be a different person for the sake of the relationships that I was in for them. And I think ultimately, uh, if our hearts can get to the place where God wants them to be, hopefully one of the reasons why we decide to trust Christ is because it's an amazing opportunity to give the God of the universe, who loves you more than anyone, uh, what he desires. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. It's such a vulnerable uh, picture. Uh, if you've ever stood at someone's door and knocked, not being sure if they're going to open, knowing that they're home and not being sure if they're going to open that door. Such a vulnerable uh, picture. And God knocks on that door uh, of our heart and gives us the opportunity to open it to him uh, and to fulfill something that he desires for us to open that door and for us to step into a relationship with him. Well, that's all the time we've got today. Vince, sum it up for us. Well, I'll just go back briefly to uh, that thought from Jason, your first question. It seems that God could have done something more. Hopefully one of the things we've emphasized here is that God did everything uh, he could, and ultimately we always need to go back to the fact that he gave his life uh, for each one of us. Uh, Let's not be people who say, but you should have done it this way, or you should have done uh, more, or couldn't you have given me the gift in a different way? When we talk with others, let's encourage them that we're not God, that he is God, but the truth is he has given us such an extravagant gift, even being willing to give his life for us. And if that's the case, then in honor of what he has done and in honor of those who are still pursuing that gift, let's make sure that we accept it wholeheartedly. Well, Vince, Joe, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next week. To find out more about our ministry or to donate, visit our website at rzim.org. If you're listening in Canada, that website is rzim.ca.